Good to see you guys. If you uh, could grab a Bible and open it up to Luke chapter 18. Uh, We're looking at verses 31 to the end of the chapter tonight. I'm going to go ahead and read that for us. Uh, Luke 18, verse 31, it says, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Uh, In verse 41, you'll see a really, really interesting question. Jesus asks this blind man, he, he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? I mean, what a powerful question, right? What do you want me to do for you? Because that, that's kind of a, a question of, of hope, isn't it? I mean, isn't that a question that has this undercurrent to it that when it's asked of you, there's something in that question that makes you think maybe something is going to finally change, you know, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, maybe there's, something's going to shift here, right? There's, there's a hope in this question. What do you want me to do for you? What a question. And I think that's a question that is a pretty powerful question even for people like us tonight because let's be real, right? We, we all have problems, don't we? We all have problems. Unless you're my uh, four-year-old daughter, Isla, who uh, visited me in my office this Thursday with my wife, Elizabeth, and uh, she, my wife was doing something and uh, Isla came in and she sat down in, in one of my chairs that many of you sit down in and, and we talk and, and have, you know, these conversations and meetings and, and she looked so tiny in this huge chair so I thought I'd joke with her and I, I slid over towards her and I got close and I said, all right, now tell me all your problems. And she looked at me and no joke, she just says, I don't even know what problems are. I don't know what problems are. And I was like, Wow. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? That sounds nice to all of us, right? Because I'm sure there's something in your life that you want relief from. Something, right? I mean, I've been reflecting on this as a pastor. I mean, I've been pastoring full-time now, maybe 12 years in the ministry, 18. So I don't have four decades of ministry or something, but uh, I've been assessing how usually in pastoral ministry, you talk to people on an average Sunday and you go, how are you doing? And the status quo is we're fine, you know, we're busy, things are good, right? And then you have like another percentage of people that's a smaller percentage, but they're like, man, things are awesome, 
so much joy in our lives. And then there's all, and then you have the other percentage that's like, man, things are really hard, right? But it's an interesting time, pastoral ministry, because I can't remember the last time I asked somebody, how are you doing? And they're like, things are great, right? Got no problems, right? We all want relief from something. And so I wonder if Jesus in the flesh walked over to you tonight and he asked you, what do you want me to do for you? I'm curious what you would, what you would say. In this passage, we see two very clear things, right? We see, number one, Jesus and his mission, his mission. And his mission was filled with problems, was filled with suffering. And number two, we see this blind man and his mission. And the question then for us remains, does Jesus's mission and my mission overlap? Does it overlap? If it does, and if you could see Jesus clearly with the gift of faith, then beautiful things are promised to you. And so that's what we're going to look at, what Jesus came to do. And then this great question, what do you want him to do for you? And I think Luke is wanting us to see that Jesus came to suffer. That much is clear. In order to relieve us of our suffering, both today and ultimately in eternity. So let's look at this, what Jesus came to do. We see this in verses 31 through 34. He and his disciples, they're on this really long walk to Jerusalem. And on this walk with his disciples, he tells them about his impending death and resurrection. This is not the first time that he's done this in Luke's gospel. Several times he's told his disciples, this is what's going to happen. And so in our text, he says, everything that is written about the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title to refer to himself as, he says, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And he explained that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, the the Romans, right? That, That he would be mocked and shamefully beaten and spit upon, he says here, that he would be flogged and that they would kill him. But on the third day, he would rise up from death to new life. So this is very clear. Jesus knows what his mission is. Like he knows what his mission is. He knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He has clarity. He knows what he's here to do. And he doesn't run from his mission. He doesn't seek to avoid suffering. No, Jesus purposefully advances towards his death. This was not a lamb being dragged to the slaughter. Right, against his wishes. No, this was Jesus, the Lamb of God, willingly, purposefully walking to the cross, knowing exactly what was going to happen. This is what he came to do. And here he's trying to make this clear to his disciples. He wants them to grasp this, to get their mind and their, their hearts around this. He wanted them to know that this was not a new idea. This was not... Um, a new plan, right? This has been talked about for ages, right? He wants them to see that this has always been God's plan. So he points them back to the Old Testament prophets. Do you notice that? He says all the prophetic words will be accomplished. When you're reading the Old Testament, he's telling you that it's anticipating him. And it's anticipating him coming and suffering, actually. And, And there's many places in the Old Testament we could look to Uh, to see what he's probably referring to. I think the most vivid and clear for us probably comes from Isaiah chapter 53, which many of you are probably familiar with. But um, there Isaiah the prophet writes, surely he, 
the suffering servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is what we need to see. What Jesus was telling his disciples was not new. It was not new. This is what the scriptures have been saying throughout generations, and Jesus wanted his disciples to grab hold of this. And so he says, beginning in verse 31, do you notice this? He says, see, see. Or your translation might say, behold. He's saying, I want you to see this. Not physically see this, but grasp this. Work your mind and your heart around it. I want you to understand and believe this, right? He's seeking to prepare his disciples for the challenging days that are about to come because they were going to see their leader, right? Their king who they have followed and trusted, who they've seen work miracles. They were going to see him die a brutal death on a cross. Overwhelming days were coming that they would have to face. So Jesus is clearly saying all of this, but what does it say? It says the sight of the disciples was clouded. It was blurry. They, they couldn't see. Verse 34 says what? They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Now, there's, a, there's a variety of reasons why they didn't understand, a complexity of reasons, you could say. And maybe at the top of this list was that Jesus didn't fit their expectations. Right? He didn't fit what they thought the Messiah would do. Maybe they thought, like a lot of other people in that day and age, that the Messiah would come and be this royal king who would overthrow the Romans and reestablish Israel and their holiness and prominence in the world. And if we're being honest, they can have a wrongful expectation of Jesus, and we can too. This could be a problem for us too, which is why we need to wrestle with what our expectations are for Jesus even today. Because if we have certain expectations for something, we can be blind to what is actually happening and what Jesus is set about to do because we're looking intently at the wrong thing. I don't know if you're familiar with um, the the book, The Invisible Gorilla. Um, It's a book that um, uh, talked about this test, this selective attention test um, that these uh, researchers, Christopher Chabri and Daniel uh, Simmons uh, conducted at Harvard University. It's a, it's a really famous thing. You've probably maybe seen this selective attention test on YouTube. It's, it's one of the most watched videos. I looked it up today. It has 27 million views, right? There's, so these two researchers, they, they create this video, and they, they have a few people who are wearing white shirts, a few people wearing black shirts. And so you watch this video, and it says, now count how many times, uh, as these people are moving in a circle, how many times the people in white shirts pass the basketball to somebody else. And so you're, you're watching this thing take place, right? And so it gets through the whole test, and they ask you this question, how many times 
was the ball passed. And I'm not going to ruin it for you, but I just want you to know I got it right, okay? I counted accurately how many times the ball was passed, okay? But then they ask you a second question, and they say, did you notice the gorilla that walked into the center of the circle and beat its chest and then walked out of the circle, right? And I kind of knew what I was expecting when I saw the video, so I was like, of course I saw that. But did you know that half the people did not see the gorilla? If you watch the video, it's, it's fascinating because, I mean, it's just right there, right? But it's a, a selective attention test, basically. It, it's showing you that what you're expecting, that what you're focusing on often will distract you from what's there right in front of you. And so we see this even maybe in the disciples, right? This inability to see is a failure on their part. Right? That's what the text tells us. But the text also tells you something else. It says that it was a deliberate act of God. The inability of man is matched by the act of God. Do you see that? They understood none of these things. It's a failure on their part. And this saying was hidden from them. We see the same thing pop up in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel in 40, verses 44 and 45. We see at the end of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus draws near to people on the road to Emmaus. He's the resurrected Savior, and it says he went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So this cross of Jesus, it remains a mystery, right, to humanity. It is unfathomable. We are blind to its glory and work, and God alone reveals the wisdom of the cross to you. I mean, I think this is hard for us because we like to think that everything is in our grasp and it offends our pride as we think this is unfair that God would hide anything from us. But I'm just the mailman. We cannot escape these words. It was hidden from them, and at least three times in this gospel, Jesus explains why. And I think the clearest one of these is Luke chapter 10, verse 21, where Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to children, for such is your gracious will. So God, in all of his power and wisdom, he deliberately keeps the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection hidden. We remain blinded until he enables us to see. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, David Attenborough. He's kind of the guy who does all the planet documentary stuff, you know, Blue Planet, Frozen Planet. There's probably a thousand planets or something. He's an atheist, scientist, and he was asked once in an interview, do you rule out that there may be a divine being out there? He said, no, I'm a scientist. That would be unscientific to rule that out. Sometimes, I think of myself looking at a termite hill, and of course, termites are blind, they cannot see, they cannot see me, and I wonder if it would be a little bit like that. He's an atheist, even. So there's, there's some truth to this. There's some truth to this, but this is, this is really hard. This is a, a humbling truth that you and I are blind to spiritual reality, that there is a combination here even and how. But personally, I've come to see how this is a wonderful truth. I mean, could you imagine if if chapter 10, verse 21, that was just up on the screen for you, uh, were written differently and Jesus prayed, Lord, I thank you that the wise and learned have worked out all spiritual truth and the powerful have 
manipulated their way into the kingdom. And, and salvation has come through those who can figure it out. Right? Through their philosophical power and craftiness. I mean, just think about that. What would God's kingdom be like? What would it be like? I mean, you might have somebody over here in heaven who's like, yeah, well, everyone else is in middle school doing dumb things. I was over there researching all the religions of the world and I, I pulled them all together and I go, you know what, this one's the right one. And you have someone over here that's really wealthy counting up their possessions saying, you know, I worked really hard, I saved, I did all these things right, polishing their possessions. That'd be horrible, right? If God is to be God, he has to be Lord of heaven and earth. And the gift of spiritual sight to humanity like you and me, who, we, who don't know our spiritual right hand from our spiritual left hand, it has to lie with him or heaven would be hell. So, so this is beyond us. And so we need to be humble enough to try and hold these wonderful truths together. We, we shouldn't conclude here that Jesus is playing some cruel trick on the disciples saying, hey, I want you to see this, but ha ha, you can't figure it out. It's not what he's doing. We know that he did want them to see because they eventually do see. Their seeing comes after these events take place and, and he wants to prepare them to be able to look back on the events of his cross and resurrection and to know that this was his plan all along. That he intentionally walked into this. This was God's plan. So I'm curious, how do you see Jesus now? Like tonight, do you, do you see him clearly? I mean, that's Luke's goal, isn't it? That we would be certain about the things concerning Jesus Christ. And so Jesus wants us to see him clearly, and he wants us to see that he came to suffer. And so, therefore, guys, we need to saturate our vision of Jesus in the cross because it's there that we actually see him. And it's in seeing him there that we're able to know not only who he is, but who we are and what he came to do. So, Jesus came. This was his mission. So, what do you want him to do for you? And does this overlap? This is what we're seeing in verses 35 through 43. We see Jesus and his disciples nearing Jericho, and as they are along the road, they pass by a blind beggar, which in that culture, a blind person would have a very, very difficult life. And begging would be the only way to try to get by on a day-to-day -day basis. So here is this guy, and he's, he's blind, and he's going along with his normal daily life of suffering. And then we see in verse 36, that he hears a crowd going by, and so the noise of the crowd is noticeable to him. And he asks what's going on, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And what does it say? It says, the blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice something really important there. Right? Jesus, they call out Jesus, son of, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what they call Jesus. But the blind man uses a different name, and he didn't get it wrong. He says, Jesus, son of David. Now, that might not carry a lot of weight for us in our modern times, but this is a, a clear title in this day pointing to Jesus as Messiah. He's the king. He's the son of David. So by this title, this blind man is affirming faith in Jesus. This blind man, though he doesn't physically see, 
he sees more clearly than the rest of the crowd. He can't see Jesus, but he knows him. He, can see, he can't see Jesus, but he, he can see him. Do you see this? So this man sees Jesus passing by as an opportunity. So he cries out for Jesus' attention. You see this in verse 39. This, this crowd is portrayed as being in front of the blind man, and the blind man is behind everyone. And so they can hear the blind man yelling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they turn around, they're like, hey, keep it down. But Luke records that this man all the more keeps crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I don't know if you've ever been really desperate for someone's attention. And normally we're kind of uh, recoiled by what people think about us. But if you've ever been a place of desperation, you know, you'll just yell, right? And in that moment, all other concerns of what other people think about you just kind of go out the window. And that's exactly what's going on here. Son of David, have mercy on me over and over, louder and louder. He's desperate for mercy, so he cries for help. And notice too, Notice, too, the pattern in chapter 18. Because what does it say up in verse 7? Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? See this in the persistent widow. We see in the tax collector in verse 13, he beats his chest and he will not lift up his eyes to heaven. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So we see Jesus here on mission to Jerusalem to endure suffering, and we see a blind man on mission for mercy. And as Jesus goes by, all of a sudden, he stops, and he says, bring this man to me. We see here that Jesus is never too busy to show mercy to those in great need. And so here's that million-dollar question again, verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? which is an interesting question because it's probably pretty obvious. I mean, he's, he's blind. Everybody knows this. But still, Jesus asks him the question to kind of draw out where his concerns lie. And then in verse 41, what does he say? Lord, let me recover my sight. Verse 42, Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Like, please don't miss the wonder of this. And it gets even better because in this account, there's actually two types of healings that are going on here. His physical sight is healed, and it's obvious to everybody around him. He couldn't see, and now he can see. But there's also something deeper going on here because in verse 44, Jesus says, your faith has made you well, which could more literally be translated, your faith has saved you. It saved you. This man has experienced physical healing and spiritual healing. He is experiencing salvation in Jesus. This is amazing to have this happen in your life. Fun fact, um, I wear contacts. And um, if you caught me on a lazy day or early morning, late at night, I have glasses. And I can remember being in third grade and all of a sudden uh, the, the chalkboard was blurry. Yeah, actually, it was a chalkboard, right? Uh, Montana was kind of behind the times of the whiteboards, right? So chalkboard. And I remember even thinking as a third grader, man, is there something wrong with me or is this just the way it is? 
I don't remember how it happened, but somehow I got tested and found out I needed, you know, glasses. And, and so today, right, if I don't have my contacts, then everything is blurry. Like, it's, I'm pretty blind in some ways because all I can see is um, blurry colors, right? Unless you're walking, I, if you're walking, I might go, that's probably a person. Or if it's going, like, really fast, I'm like, that's probably a car, you know, but I couldn't be able to make you out. You could be sleeping right now. I would have no idea, which might be great for you, right? I wouldn't be able to see the clock, though, which would be bad for you, right? Because who knows how long I could talk up here today. Um, but, at, but at the end of the day, like, I need these things to see clearly, clearly. And if I didn't, then blurriness would actually become normal for me. I would adapt. I would begin to make the most of things. But blurry seems right until I have seen clearly. Unclear would seem completely normal to me. I would begin to think that that's what the world is really like. That everything is unclear. That everything is blurry. But if I begin to live like that and someone were to give me the right prescription and I could see clearly again, then it would be like my eyes were opened for the first time. right? And, and see with clarity what the world is really like and, and what the world would be like is different than what my experience had been. Different from the blurry picture that I had been seeing day after day that I had grown accustomed to. And what Jesus is getting at here is, yes, there is a physical blindness to some people, right? But there is a different sight we have besides physical sight, and, and you could just call it the sight of the soul. And what's normal with the sight of the soul is to be spiritually blinded. Or, or to see so blurry that you cannot see what is accurate and ultimate. But before long, since that's all you see, that becomes normal. The blurry outlook is what we think the world is really like. It's all we can imagine because it's all we've ever seen. And that's what's happening here. This guy is physically blind, but he knows he's blind. The physically blind know they're blind. But all of us are spiritually blind and it's hard for us to recognize that. Not everyone knows that. And I think part of this spiritual blindness is manifested in how we even view ourselves in relationship to God. We often see our relationship to God in a way that we think God might owe us. Because look at what this guy cries out for. Don't, don't miss this. He cries out for mercy. He doesn't cry out, Son of David, give me what I deserve. Everybody else can see, but I I can't, so give me what I deserve. He doesn't say that. He's crying out for mercy. He's crying out for the undeserved favor of God. You guys hear this. God gives mercy right, to whoever is willing to humble themselves and ask for it. Right? He's so gracious and kind because he doesn't give us what we actually deserve. Which in our blindness we can think we deserve a lot. I'm curious if you feel this way tonight, if, if you were vulnerable enough. Maybe if you just journaled it, no one would see it. Do, do you sit here tonight actually thinking that God owes you something? And that would even be attached to the question of what do you want me to do for you? That there is something you don't have that you deserve. But guys, what we deserve is, is not good. And that's why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And he's the only one who doesn't deserve what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. 
And it's his grace that gives us what we don't deserve. His mercy comes on those who cry out for it. When our mission is linked up with his, it's new every morning, we're told. And so he gives this man mercy. And what's the result of all of it? He can see, but what does the text tell you he does in verse 43? Immediately, he recovered his sight and he followed him, glorifying God. So we see the man who's changed by Jesus, and now he wants to follow Jesus and glorify God, right? So he's recognizing and receiving mercy. And so when you and I really see what it is, right, we we joyfully follow Jesus. He receives mercy, and now he follows. And this is the pattern for us too, right? We, We don't follow Jesus so that we will receive mercy. We follow because we have received mercy, We don't follow Jesus to receive his grace. We follow him because we have received his grace. We don't follow him to try to earn his favor. We follow him because we have earned his favor in Christ. We follow and worship him from grace, not in order to receive it. So he follows, but then the crowd, what does the crowd do? You see their response in verse 43. The bystanders see this man's life change and they praise God. Jesus' act of mercy stirs up others to praise him. And so it's important to, to let others then see even the transformation that God is bringing in your life. This is pivotal here. This is a communal thing that God is using in the event of this crowd. It's important for us to share that, to to show and testify to the transformation that God brings in our lives. And so it kind of then is drawn out of us that if we aren't close enough for others to hear that, if we aren't close enough for others to see that, then we need to work at that and being known and being open. I think this is why I've, one of the highlights of my year so far has been uh, my community group. On, that we when we meet on Thursday nights, it's it's one of my favorite things because we we eat right, which is always really good. Our community group has the best food for sure. Um, we pray together, but we hear someone share their testimony, and every single time I hear it, I'm just stirred up to praise God. I mean, this week Julia is sharing her testimony, and I'm just holding back the tears, going, "Wow, God, you're so amazing!" Just just praising Him. Why? Because. She's sharing the transformation that God's brought into her life. Right? People have to know about the before we, before we could praise God for the after. Like this, is, this is the last miracle that, that Luke records before the greatest miracle of the resurrection. But in this miracle, we see that Jesus is doing exactly what he came to do. I mean, if you think way back to the summer of 2020, I know PTSD, sorry to remind you, but I do so because we we went through Luke chapter 4 when we went back there, which began Jesus' public ministry where he's in a synagogue and they bring him a scroll and he gets up and he opens the scroll to Isaiah and he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after reading this, he says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And here it is, right? Years later, from the beginning of his ministry, he's doing exactly what he said he came to do. 
Here it is, the completeness of his ministry. See the faithfulness of Jesus here, you guys. Luke 18, over these last few weeks as we've walked through this chapter, has just been a gold mine. And, and it's here really through all these parables and all these different things that we've, we've walked through, it's here that all these threads come together and show us what salvation looks like. It started with a parable of a persistent widow. It moved to a parable of a religious leader and a tax collector. And here at the end, we have another story, but it's not a parable, it's news. Something's happened. He doesn't say, imagine a blind man. No, a guy could not see, and now he can see. And he says, your faith has saved you. And do you think back to what his question was to his disciples when he tells them about the persistent widow? What did he ask them? He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, here is faith on earth. It's right here. We see his persistence. We see he knows who Jesus is and what he wants and what Jesus came to do. And his desire, they overlap. I mean, what a chapter what a chapter. Jesus collects all these people, a widow, a tax collector, children, a blind man, and he kind of gathers them up before our eyes, these rejected figures in society, and he says the kingdom is for them. All these people. And it's the religious person. It's the rich. Those who exalt themselves. It's those who could say, oh, I see clearly. Oh, I can see. But, but they don't realize they've just been living with the blurriness of life. They've lived with the blurriness and they've gotten used to it. It's those that don't enter. See, the song of every Christian is the, is the song of, of John Newton. Right? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And so I wonder how you see Jesus. Can you see him? What do you want him to do for you? Do you see what he came to do? And do you see him doing that for you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just your extravagant power and grace and mercy in our lives. Lord, help us to pray like the blind man tonight. Recover our sight. Recover our sight that we might see what we are meant to see, that we would see the wisdom of the cross and we would see your working miracles in our lives. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for going to the cross for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.